Indeed, an atheist might claim, following the likes of Sigmund Freud, that people only worship God because they, they want to believe in God, because they're scared of a world they don't understand and cannot control. But that argument actually, you see, should be flipped around. That there are atheists who don't want God to be real because they are afraid of a God they don't understand and cannot control who is over this world. And every atheist still worships. I, I didn't know this but the, until this week, but there are, there's a religion where people, atheists, mind you, those who claim to worship, believe in no God, they worshiped Gaia. Gaia comes from the Greek word for earth. And they worship Mother Earth. They worship nature. And some, without realizing it, are constantly worshiping, many of them are worshiping science as the human achievement and worshiping humanity for all our abilities. The fact is, everyone worships. And no one needs to be called to worship. But everyone needs to be called to worship the one true God. And that's what David is doing. In Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, we read this call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. <clears throat> this is a call to worship where David is saying that all glory belongs to God, Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and it belongs to Him alone. Worship Him. You will worship. I'm just saying worship Him. Verse 1 here is an argument from greater to lesser. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Well, who is he addressing here? It says, O heavenly beings, <clears throat> but there's a footnote, a little superscript above that, or maybe a number or a letter that tells you that there's an alternative reading here. So it could be here, heavenly beings, as in angels. It could be sons of might or the mighty ones. Or it could be, most literally, the sons of the gods. And, I, and, and any way you look at it, it's, it's an argument from greater to lesser. Because if it's, it's a, if it's mighty ones, the sons of might, then it's speaking of princes and rulers of the earth. Those mighty men with, with fame and riches and power. And if they are called to worship the Lord, then how much more are we who are not mighty called to worship Him? And their argument gets even stronger when, it, when you see it as heavenly beings, as the ESV puts it here, as angels, these angelic, holy, powerful beings. If they are called to ascribe glory and worth and strength to God, then how much more should we who are weak, limited, sinful humans? But I actually favor, I think, the translation <clears throat> that is most literal from the Hebrew, Bene Elim, sons of the gods. This indeed would be the same argument, though. What he's saying, he's speaking to the gods of the peoples around him, these false gods of these other nations, and saying, you, bow down before Yahweh, worship him. Which would be a way of saying, hey, all you people who worship these gods who are no gods at all, then you ought to be bowing down to Yahweh. The reason why I think that sons of the gods makes the most sense here in its translation is in part because Baal, some people call him Baal, but Baal is... The God, uh, uh, one of the main gods, the people around David worshipped at this time. And Baal literally means Baal, or the son of the gods. And that uh, he is, Baal is the son of Ael, or the son of Dagon. The Philistines around David worshipped Baal and Ael and Dagon. Both Ael and Dagon considered to be Baal's father. And all the gods I mentioned earlier 
are a part of this in some fashion in the future from when David is writing. But also because of 1 Chronicles 16, this is not the first time David uses, uses this language of ascribing to the Lord glory and strength. If you turn to 1 Chronicles 16, this is right after David and Israel had defeated the Philistines. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And David dances with all his might, praising God, and he writes this song. And we read in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 25, he says, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He, Yahweh, is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That is, they are nothing. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord and the splendor of holiness. This is what we have in Psalm 29, the same language. And it's in the context of saying that Yahweh is better than all these other gods because they are worthless idols, no gods at all. There's another time, though, previous to this, where the Philistines and their god Dagon and the Ark of the Covenant had interacted. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read of the Philistines capturing the Ark of Yahweh and taking it back to their city and putting it in their temple where they worshipped Dagon. They had a statue of Dagon there. And this, they put the Ark of the Covenant there. And the next morning they came back into the temple to worship Dagon. And the statue of Dagon had fallen over, lying down as though it's bowing before the Ark. They got embarrassed and they quickly put up the statue back. And let's not tell anybody about that. The next morning they come back and the statue had fallen over again, bowing down before the Ark of Yahweh. But this time his hands and his head had fallen off. And then all the people of the Philistines got these terrible, painful tumors all over their body. And they asked their priest, what shall we do? And they said, take the ark back. Take the ark of Yahweh back to Israel and and take with it sacrifices and, and, and offerings. And he says, give glory to Yahweh. This is a classic case of their gods being proved to be no god at all. And Yahweh being the one only worthy of worship. And all those gods I mentioned earlier, this is another reason why I think this makes sense to see that he's saying, Ascribe to the Lord, O gods of the nations around me, you sons of the gods. Because these other gods I mentioned, Elil and El and Hadad and Baal and Dagon and Zeus and Jupiter, they're not only all false gods, they're all considered gods of weather. They're considered lords of the storm. Many of them are pictured as strong bulls with lightning coming out around them or with, as human beings or, or great men with lightning bolts in their hands. And in Psalm 29, we will see in verses 3 through 9 that David is writing about a storm. He's writing this psalm in response to seeing this massive and terrible thunderstorm. And he's saying that Yahweh is the true Lord of the storm. So no one needs to be called to worship Everyone worships, but everyone needs to be called to worship the Lord, including us, regularly so, because we are constantly, constantly being called to worship other things, constantly being tempted to worship this or that or this person or that person. And we need to be reminded and called again and again and again to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and only to him. 
Look at verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I think the, the way to understand that last phrase is worship the Lord because he is splendid. He is beautiful in his holiness. He is glorious in his majesty, in his otherness. It's because of who he is. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name simply because of who he is. He's worthy. He is glorious, so ascribe glory to him. And I love what David says. We are giving glory to God in one sense, and yet he doesn't say give. He says ascribe. I think that's helpful. Because when we give glory to God, we're not actually giving him something he doesn't already possess. We're just acknowledging that he is indeed the all-glorious one, the one full of worth and magnificence and majesty. He is the excellent one. We are simply acknowledging that he has this strength and this majesty, this holiness and this worth. We're saying that he is worthy of our trust and praying to him. He's worthy of our praising and rejoicing in. He is the worthy one. The glory is due his name. He deserves it. And this is why failure to worship the Lord is a double tragedy. It's a double evil. First, because when you don't worship the Lord, you're not giving him what he deserves. You're not giving him his just glory. It's due him. It's owed him. But also, when you're not giving glory to God who is worthy of it, you are giving glory to something else that is not. That's why it's a double evil. And the battle, the battle is real and it's every day. The battle is for our hearts. In every situation you face, the battle is for your hearts of whom or what you will worship. And I love the battle between Baal and Yahweh on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah comes before the prophets of Baal and say, hey, let's have a contest. Let's have a battle. Let's see who wins. So he says, let's, let's put a sacrifice, this animal, on this stone altar, and let's call forth fire from heaven. After all, if Baal is the lord of the storm, he should have no problem bringing fire down from heaven, right? So call out to him and see what happens. And they do. They call out to him all day long calling out to him, crying out to him, slashing themselves, falling on their faces. But, oh, please answer us. But, of course, there was no answer. Then Elijah says, pour water over it. The trench around it is filled with water all over this altar. It's soaked. And he asks God, prove yourself to be the one and only God worthy of worship. And immediately a fire comes down out of heaven, consumes not only the sacrifice and all the water, but even the stones upon which the water was poured and the altar was laid. Sacrifice, everything. The point of that, though, is not merely that, well, the Lord responded, and and Baal did not, because I guess he was busy. The point of that story, the point of what David is talking about in Psalm 29, is that the Lord is, and Baal is not. That Yahweh is the response of God because he is the only God, the living, active, sovereign God over all the universe. And Baal is nothing. And so he alone is worthy to be worshipped. And so in verses 1 and 2, we find the call to worship. And then verses 3 through 9, we have the reason for worship. The reason for worship is that the awesome power of God is revealed, is put on display, mainly in a storm where there is thunder and lightning and there is wind and rain. And it's powerful and it's destructive. And it shows the glory of God. You know, there are events, there are circumstances, there are happenings in this world that can shake us, that can frighten us. 
simply because they make us feel desperate and powerless because we know, and then we feel it, that we are simply not in control. Storms and other natural disasters like earthquakes and mudslides and wildfires, droughts and tsunamis and tornadoes and tropical storms and hurricanes, squalls and floods and thunderstorms, blizzards and freezing rain and ice, avalanches, rock slides, hail, lightning, winds, and all things like this prove this point, that we're not in control. But they also prove another point, that God is. Because God is said to be the one ultimately and decisively behind each of these things. God is said to be the one sovereign over and active in these things. We see in chapter 29 of Psalms, verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Now, it was wind, this massive, powerful, gale force winds that blew down these trees, these massive trees. But it says the Lord does it. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. This is thunder and lightning that shakes the earth and the mountains. But he says God does it. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Is it the storm or is it God? And David says yes. But... But doesn't that mean, I mean, can't we just reason for a moment? Our, our modern understanding of science, our abilities and technology today, doesn't that kind of make a belief in God juvenile, gullible, uneducated, even unnecessary? There are many who think so and would want you to do so. There are many, as I said earlier, who worship science. And they would ask questions like, how do you hope to reconcile science and belief in God? How do you hope to reconcile science and the Bible, science and Christianity? In his excellent, excellent book, um, Can Science Explain Everything? John C. Lennox, I think, would answer that question. Can you hope to reconcile science and your faith in God by saying, no, because you don't need to reconcile friends. Science and faith, science and Christianity, science and the Word of God are not at odds. He quotes from C.S. Lewis in this book who says that men become, became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. That is, they believed that there are laws in nature because God created these laws in nature. And it was their faith in God that led them to scientific discovery. And then Lennox says from this that far from hindering the rise of modern science, faith in God was one of the motors that drove it. You would maybe be surprised at how many of the Nobel Prize winners are Christians, or at least theists. Johannes Kepler, one of the greatest scientists of history, the one who discovered the laws of planetary motion, he once said that the chief aim of all investigations of the external world that is, the, the main goal of every act of science should be to discover the rational order which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us. Kepler has also said that science is simply attempting to think God's thoughts after him. We're trying to understand how his mind works and what he does in this world. So it is completely fitting 
It is logically valid. It is thoroughly consistent to believe in an all-powerful creator, sustainer, and providential God in this world, while at the same time seeking to understand as much as we can through scientific inquiry. But together, science and religion are not enemies. Science and faith in God are not at odds. That's because we do not hold to the God of the gaps theology. The God of the gaps, you know, where we say, I understand this and this, but there's a gap here. I don't understand this. Oh, so we'll just put God there. I don't get that. So we'll say that's a God thing. God must be behind that because I, I don't get it. Well, well, what happens when we do understand something? You know, Sir Isaac Newton, a believer in God, when he formulated the theory for the law of gravitation, didn't say, oh, well, we don't need God to understand gravity anymore because we got science, so God must not be. He actually said, I hope all my observations lead people to trust in God. And I love what Lennox here, quoting from his book, he says, Werner Jaeger, a world expert in, on ancient Near Eastern religions, points out that the gods of the ancient world, that is, Ael and Elon, and Hadad and Baal and Dagon and such. They had this in common. All these gods, their origins were described in terms of being descended from the heavens and the earth. They were products, as it were, of the primeval chaos of mass and energy, and so were essentially material gods. By contrast, Yeager wrote, the God of the Bible is described as creating the heavens and the earth. He was not descended from them. No, he indeed has ordained them, is sovereign over them, and providentially works in them. Linux says that God, the God of the Bible, is not the God of the gaps. He is the God of the whole show. He is the God of the bits of the universe we don't understand and of the bits that we do. God didn't just create and doesn't, isn't just sovereign over and doesn't just work in the things that we can't explain, but in everything that we can. The reason why I bring all this up is because I want you to see that God himself is giving you a call to worship. He is calling you to worship through both books he has written. That is, the book of creation in nature where he has revealed himself and the book of scripture that he has given to us. And from Psalm 29 and from nature itself, John Calvin, I love what he says about this. I'll paraphrase. He says that all scientific investigation... All scientific discovery and observation ought to be and is profitable and pleasurable if and only if it leads us, as it ought to, to the author of nature, God himself. He goes on to say that, but nothing is more preposterous. I love that word. Nothing is more preposterous, which means nothing is more foolish and insane than allowing secondary causes to keep us from the awesome and the ultimate cause. He says that, that nothing is more foolish and insane that, than we, we would look at secondary causes like barometric pressure and, and the water cycle and rises and falling of temperature in the atmosphere. And we say, we can explain this scientifically through all these secondary causes. He says, if you see that and it doesn't lead you to approach God in worship, then he says, actually, you know nothing at all. We are meant to study this world that God has made. We are meant to study these secondary causes, but we're meant to also study through them to the ultimate cause, God himself, who has ordained everything and providentially works in everything for his righteous designs. Earlier I said that <clears throat> there are many things in this world, including storms, 
natural disasters that can shake us and terrify us. And I said it's because we cannot control them. I didn't say it was because we can't explain them. No, we can understand much about the science of weather and natural disasters. We can learn and read, study. We can watch movies and see pictures and charts and graphs galore. That doesn't mean we can control them. We can learn enough about them maybe to avoid something. Maybe we can learn enough to, to minimize the destruction of these storms. Maybe even to harness some of their power for good. But we cannot control them. We're not sovereign over them. But God is. God can control them and He does. But more than God controlling and being sovereign over storms, as the true Lord of the storm, He has also ordained them and planned them and is active in the midst of them to do His holy will. And if you will, in every drop of rain, in every howl of the wind, in every lightning bolt that strikes, in every roar of thunder, we are meant to hear the voice of God. And we are meant to respond and worship. Because after all, everything in this world that is in nature, God is not only sovereign over and working in, but he's doing it as a call to worship him. Just like verses 1 and 2 are our call to worship, verses 3 through 9, as I said, are the reason for worship. It's the, it's the why of worship. Look at verses 3 and 4. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. This is most likely describing the storm out at sea, out of the Mediterranean Sea, about 50 miles or so to the west of Israel. And you see this, this storm rolling in on these clouds, thick and darkness with lightning scattering. Temperatures drop and it gets cooler and it's moving in, inland to the north in Lebanon in the mountains. And then it comes down from that, we'll read, into Kadesh. And it comes, keeps on coming down into Israel where David is. Here over the waters we see that God is the sovereign Lord of the storm over the sea. The sea for the ancient peoples was considered evil because it was so chaotic it was destructive no one can tame it and it was so deep no one could fathom them and many were lost many lives were taken at sea and so here it's a double way of glorifying god he is sovereign over the storm at the sea but it notice what it says it says the voice of the lord is over the waters the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. In verses 3 through 9, we find this phrase, the voice of the Lord, seven times. What does it mean? It's not referring to some audible sound where as, as if God had vocal cords and he's speaking out for others to hear. This is a metaphor. The voice of the Lord is a metaphor for God's sovereign decrees and his providential activities in this world. Because when God speaks, things happen. It is he who said, let there be light, and there was. This is a way of God saying, David saying, when God decrees something, when he ordains or plans something, when God moves, there is a real and unstoppable effect that comes about. God has ordained and he has planned all that happens, all that comes about, and he is providentially working in all that occurs, including terrifying storms that we cannot control. 
our God, in fact, is worthy of worship. In part because He is sovereign. He is alone worthy of worship because He alone is sovereign. That is, He has the right and authority. He has the wisdom and the skill. He has the power and the ability to do all His holy will. Always. But He carries out and we see His sovereignty displayed most often in acts of providence. By providence, I mean that God works with complex heavenly wisdom in and through ordinary, simple, earthly means. By providence, I mean that God is active with supernatural power in and through natural processes. The supreme creator over the universe is providentially and intimately involved in his creation to preserve it and to so govern it and work in it in, through, and for the people, his people of this creation. Listen, all according to the laws of nature that he invented and that he upholds by the word of his power. So this storm in Psalm 29 is a real storm. There's real wind and rain and lightning and thunder. But whether it is a real storm or a metaphorical storm, God is the Lord of the storm. We see that he is behind it all in verse 5. Again, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. This massive wind is blowing down these cedar trees. Sometimes they said that these trees could have been 130 feet tall by 6 feet wide at the trunk and over 50 feet wide at its breadth of its branches. And these trees were knocked down, breaking them by this powerful storm. But he, David says that the Lord does it. The Lord is the one who gives power to this wind. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf in Syrian. That is Mount Hermon, the highest mountain peak in Palestine. He makes them to skip like a young wild ox. They're shaking and moving about. How? Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. When you have lightning, what else do you have but thunder? It's lightning breaking the sound barrier. And if you've ever been close to lightning when it strikes and the thunder is right with it, it shakes the ground you're standing on. But God is the one in it, over it, and behind it all. We have in these verses that God is the sovereign Lord of the storm, not only over the sea, but also in the north. And then as it moves down from there into Kadesh, in verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Now that phrase, makes the deer give birth, is kind of odd to us. There is a little uh, footnote there that says it may be that it uh, said that it makes the oaks to shake. Seems to make more sense to me, but either way, the, the point is clear. God is so powerful, so intense, and the power of this storm that crazy and scary things begin to happen. The strips, the forest bare, that is all the leaves off the tree, perhaps all the limbs off the tree, perhaps all the trees out of the forest are being blown down. So powerful is the storm, and God is in it, over it, and behind it all. The question then is this. Do you hear the voice of God in the thunder? Not that you would hear God audibly speak, but do you recognize the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the providential work of God in this creation and including in these terrifying storms that none of us can control? Do you hear the voice of God? And what do you hear? Do you hear Him speaking, saying, 
All strength and glory and splendor of holiness is mine. Do you hear in speaking the words of verse 10 where David says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And if you hear it, how do you respond? Do you respond like the people in verse 9? They all cry in the temple, glory. Do you see a massive thunderstorm? You see a tsunami or a hurricane on video or, or tornado and say, wow, that's neat. Wow, that's destructive and meaningless. Wow, that sure is Mother Nature at her worst. Or do you shout glory to the Lord of the storm? That He is over it, behind it, and in it all. We are meant to worship Him through what we behold of His power and His majesty and His sovereign control and His providential work. But how? And verses 1 and 2 are who we are to worship. And verses 3 through 9 are why we are to worship. And verses 9b through 11 are the how of our worship. How do we worship Him? But by humbly and joyfully trusting in God alone. Into verse 9 again, when they see this destructive, this terrifying storm that nobody can control, they shout, glory to God. The God of glory from verse 3. The Lord of the storm. He sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. How do we ascribe glory to him? We acknowledge that he is sovereign in his power over and he is providential in his activity in all the created order, including storms. I love it here at verse 10. It's kind of striking. It says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. It's most likely here a perfect tense. The Lord sat enthroned over the flood. Because this is not a flood, but the flood. This word for flood is, is a technical term. It's only used 12 times and every time in the book of Genesis in chapter 6 through 10 with the flood of Noah. The global flood. That was over a thousand years before David sees this storm. Maybe it isn't even causing here a mini flood. But why does he bring up this word for the flood of Noah? Perhaps it just led him to think that God is sovereign over this because he's always been sovereign, even over the worst natural disasters this creation has ever seen. But perhaps it's also because he had, as I said earlier, he had read of the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh predates um, what we read of in Scripture. And it speaks of a global flood. But what's funny, if you read that the Epic of Gilgamesh on one of these tablets, it speaks of the gods creating this flood and then literally cowering down in a corner because they're terrified of the flood they just made. One author says they were terrified and scared spitless because the power that they had just wreaked havoc on this earth, they didn't know what to do about it. They all cried out, what have we done and what are we to do? And David laughs and mocks them and says, is that your idea of a god? Let me tell you where Yahweh was. He was there. He ordained it. He was sovereign over it. He was working providentially in it because he sat enthroned over the flood, not cowering in some corner. He is the Lord of the storm and the God of glory. But not just over that flood and over that storm, but everyone, because the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Always has and always will be the sovereign one, the king supreme. He will always reign supreme over every storm, including the most disastrous and terrifying events in your life, whether they be actual storms or not. He is enthroned, the king forever. 
What do, how do we respond to this? We worship him by acknowledging that he is sovereign and power over and providential in his activity in these storms. But we also see that this same God who is sitting enthroned as king forever is the God who cares for his people. Verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Most scholars see this as actually a statement of the Lord will give strength to his people and the Lord will bless his people with peace. Because he can. There's none to stay his hand or stop him. Because he is the sovereign one, the king supreme, the only God. And therefore the only one worthy of worship. If his awesome power calls you to worship him, how much more his gentle mercy. That he cares for people like us. That he comes to our aid. But by this I don't mean that... We are to so trust Him that in our lives there will be always storm-free because our God is the Lord of the storm. No, this storm was going down from Lebanon, down through Kadesh, heading straight towards Jerusalem. And David had no reason to expect that it would stop before it got there. God will not stop every storm. He hasn't, has He? And He won't. But He'll do something better. He will show you that even in the midst of it, He is working. And He will give strength to His people. And He will bless you with peace. Even as it rages on. Because He's sovereign over it, yes. But also because He's working in it. For the good of His people. So we trust Him for it. That's how we worship Him. We, we trust Him that He is on the throne. Always and no matter what. When our world is shaking, we turn and we see that the world is, is in His hands and He's the one shaking it. We trust Him as being on the throne. We trust Him to reign supreme over all things. We trust Him to providentially be working in all things for the good of His people and the glory of His name. That He will give us strength. That He will bless us with peace. That's why we trust Him. And that's how we glorify Him. Because this God, unlike the gods, the false gods of the peoples around David, unlike the false gods of the people around us, this God, the true God, cannot be overpowered. He cannot be outwitted or bargained with or manipulated or tricked. But he can be trusted. He's not someone that we can control, but we don't have to. Tornadoes and storms often seem so chaotic and out of control, but they're not. They're just out of our control. They are completely under God's control, and that is good. And God, He seems like His His sovereignty and His supreme rule that He can bring storms on us at any time. That seems scary, like it's just chaotic and arbitrary and out of control. But He's not. He is completely under control of Himself, and that is good. So kids and adults, whenever you get scared of a storm, whether it be an actual storm or not, when something comes into your life and shakes you, and frightens you. Resolve. Resolve here and now. To not only pray to God for protection. Don't only ask God to give strength to His people. And bless His people with peace. But trust Him for it. Resolve right now to cry in the temple. Glory. Whatever the storm may be. Resolve to give Him glory. As the God who is over the storm. In His sovereign power. And as the God who is in the storm. For His providential purposes. The God who strengthens His people. And blesses them with peace. And perhaps consider reading Psalm 29. 
during the next storm that you feel afraid in. And let it be to you a powerful call to worship. To worship the Lord by ascribing glory and strength to His name. God, you alone sit enthroned as King forever. You are the sovereign one. You are the providential one in every storm. And I can trust you because you will give strength to your people and you will bless your people with peace. But the problem, of course, is that we, we do not deserve to trust in God. We don't deserve as sinners to be able to trust in God, the one who is is sitting on His throne in the splendor of His holiness. We don't deserve His blessed promises. But God is not only a God who is holy and powerful and sovereign, He's also a God who is full of mercy and grace and covenant kindness. And this covenant kindness of God, this mercy, this grace of God is free. And it is secure, guaranteed and promised for all of those, but for only those who are in His covenant by faith. By faith in God in general, yes, but more than that, by faith in the real Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the real Lord of the storm who walked upon the tumultuous waters and called Peter to do the same. Jesus, the Lord of the storm who calmed the raging sea with simply one word from the end of verse 29, Psalm 29, peace, be still. Jesus, the Lord of the storm, who bled on die and died on Calvary and rose again, conquering the grave to show that He's also the King of salvation. This is the one in whom we are to place our faith. Both for every storm here and now, but also in the storm of judgment when God sits on His throne to judge the world. We will only be kept safe. We will only find shelter. He will only give us strength and bless us with peace if we have faith in Jesus who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again from the dead to secure this gracious salvation for all those and only those who are trusting in Him. So this morning, if you are not trusting in the Lord Jesus as the Lord of the storm and the King of salvation, the God of glory, then I urge you, I warn you, not to come up and partake of communion when others do. When others are coming up to do that, just bow your head. Bow your head and pray. And ask God to show you the truth. And then maybe afterwards, come and talk to me. Or another one of the pastors or another Christian around you. Put it on a connection card. You want somebody to talk to you more about this good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of sinners. And this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus and you've had your faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church, then in just a moment, I invite you to exit to the left, come up to the front to one of these tables and take your communion elements, this bread and this juice. The gluten-free is to the far left. And you go back to your seat to the right and take it with faith in all that it represents, the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus given to save us from the storm of the wrath of God for justly for our sin. And when you're there, ask the Lord to help you to trust Him. And ask the Lord to help you to give Him glory in the midst of every storm. For those who should come, whenever you're ready, please do.